Hey, good morning. If I don't know you, I am the other Megan. Um, there are two of us here today. And I am here to finish out the Jonah series. Um, so when I was a, a teenager, I was 13, I stayed with another family for the summer. And this family introduced me to what was going to become my favorite sandwich. It's the sandwich I made all through middle school, all through high school. I think I had it yesterday. And the sandwich is fried egg and tomato. And you've got to take really good bread. I like it on sourdough. I had it on Dave's yesterday. It's got to be toasted. I'm a mayonnaise girl. I like mayonnaise on it. And the egg needs to be fried over medium. You've got to break the yolk a little bit so there's no bulge in your sandwich. Do you know what I mean? And then the tomatoes need to be sliced evenly, salted, and peppered. And it is a thing of beauty. And I love this sandwich so much. I've introduced it to lots of people. Matt loves the sandwich. My best friend Mel loves the sandwich. Uh, the people who don't love the sandwich in my life are, of course, I saw your face. My kids. My kids don't love the sandwich. That's predictable. Aiden tried once. When Aiden was about three years old, my friend Mel was over, and we were making the sandwich, and she asked Aiden, hey, buddy, can I make you one? Would you try it for me, maybe? And he was like, yes, of course, Auntie Mel, I'll do anything for you. You know, he wouldn't do it for mom. And so she made him a perfect specimen, specimen of a sandwich and handed it to him in his high chair. And he picked it up and took a big old bite with his adorable chubby cheeks full mouth of sandwich, and she said, oh, do you like it? And he went, mm-hmm, mm -hmm, and immediately started to cry <laughs> because he wanted to please his auntie so much. He tried so hard to like it for her, but he just couldn't do it. The truth came out. And I think this morning, <laughs> we're going to see that the real Jonah, Jonah's real opinions, Jonah's real tastes are gonna come out for all of us to see. Um, like we said, this is our final week in the book of Jonah. We spent the whole season of Lent in this book because of the reflective nature of it. We're taking a look at Jonah, his actions, his emotions, and we're letting the Holy Spirit look into our hearts and examine our hearts to see what we have in common with him. To do a quick recap, this is an over-the-top, satirical story full of drama and excitement. And, and the villains, it's a story where the villains are the ones who repent, and the protagonist is the one who does everything wrong. Right? In chapter 1, we saw Jonah, this mighty prophet of the Lord, trying to flee to the end of the earth to escape the presence of the Lord. Do you remember he got in a boat, got in the bottom of the boat and was sleeping during the storm? He was going in the opposite direction of where the Lord told him to go. So the Lord sent a storm. And then, in a really unexpected turn, the sailors on the boat, the ones who were supposed to be pagans, were begging Jonah to cry out to God and save them from the storm. They drew lots to see who was the cause of the storm, when the whole time Jonah could have told them, right? He knew. 
Um, but they asked him, when they found it was him, they asked him what to do so that the storm would abate, so their lives would be saved. At that moment, he could have cried out to the Lord and prayed and repented, but again, he didn't. Instead, he said, throw me into the sea. He would rather drown in a storm than obey God. They do tend to toss him into the sea where despite his attitude, God saves him anyway. He sent a big fish to swallow him. And you'd think that would be enough for Jonah to finally surrender, but it wasn't. It took him three days in the belly of the fish before he cried out to God. And when he did, do you remember that prayer? It was sort of a a copy-paste of several different psalms that had no real authenticity, no repentance, no heart's cry to the Lord. He just put on a good show. But the Lord accepted it, and he sent a great big fish, or he sent that fish to spit him out on dry land. And then Jonah does finally go to Nineveh. He gives the most half-hearted attempt at a prophetic message. Paul called it prophetic sabotage, right? There was, um, he wasn't going to tell the Ninevites what they were doing wrong. He wasn't even going to tell them to repent. All he told them is that they would be overthrown. But in the end, it didn't matter because thanks be to God, it was enough. The people of Nineveh repented. They turned. They were somehow able to take that bare information that Jonah gave them and grasp on to God. The scripture says they believed God and they were spared. They weren't overthrown. And so that lands us this week in chapter four, but we need to go back a verse. We need to go to back to Jonah 3.10. Um, when God saw what they did, what they repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So today we're going to look at Jonah's response. Please open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter four the lost chapter of Jonah, because this isn't in any of your children's books. All right, Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint 
and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's the end. That's the end. (laughs) That's the end of the book of Jonah. It's not very satisfying, is it? I can see from your faces, we're all left wondering, what happens? Does Jonah relent? Does he continue in his stubbornness? Does God wipe him out and let the people of Nineveh live? What happens? And that's the literary point of this book, because the book's not really about Jonah. It's about you. It's about me. We're left to wonder, what would we do were we in this situation? I have to admit, I've seen myself quite a bit in Jonah this week as I've been studying. So I want to approach this as sort of a a character review. I want to look at the person of Jonah, his actions, his emotions, his motivations, and see if we can find ourselves in them, see if we can find ourselves as we look into the mirror of Jonah. See what the Holy Spirit has for us. All right, so this final chapter opens with a really powerful interaction between Jonah and God. In those opening verses, Jonah's still in Nineveh, and he's crying out to the Lord. And can you guys tell me, what is the primary emotion there? What is his feeling? Not just anger. Disgust. Yeah. But it's like exceeding anger. It's like super anger. And he is, um, he reminds me very much, I think, of a toddler in the, in the cereal aisle of a grocery store, right? Throwing their arms and kicking and flailing and screaming. You know, he's yelling out, um, I'd rather die than see you let Nineveh off the hook, Lord. Actually, I'd rather die as more teenager than toddler, isn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So he's angry for a lot of reasons, right? He's still probably angry about the storm. He's probably angry about the fish and the vomit. He's probably angry about having to go to Nineveh. But there's actually another reason in this book, sort of a hidden reason that he's angry, and I find it really, really funny. There is a pun found in the language of Jonah's message to the Ninevites, the message that God told him to preach. Do you have that? Yet yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is, what, eight words in English? Five words, a five-word message in Hebrew. The funny, the, the, the pun there is in the word overthrown. The Hebrew word for overthrown is hafak, hafak. And it means to overthrow, but it also means to turn or change. Look at the other, some other places in scripture where, it, where it's used. 
in Genesis 19.39, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. In this verse, both catastrophe and overthrew are that word, hafak, or derivatives of it. Do you guys remember where Lot had lived? Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. So in, in, in this use, it's talking about like fireballs coming from heaven kind of destruction. But take a look at this. Same word here, familiar verse. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That word there turned. Hafak. Changed. This one's an even better example. This is God speaking. This is God speaking about a disaster he was going to bring on his people of Israel. He calls them Ephraim here. My heart, God's heart, is changed within me. My compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. God's heart is hafakt within him. His heart is changed. Do you remember last week's sermon? When I do this, what are we? Changed. It's repent. It's repent. So... So when Jonah was wandering around the third of the city of Nineveh, yelling out yet 40 days, what he thought he was yelling was yet 40 days and fireballs are going to come from heaven and incinerate you. But what he was actually yelling out was yet 40 days and you're going to be changed You're going to be transformed. You're going to repent. He was prophesying the repentance of the people. All while he thought he was was yelling out their doom. And he didn't take it very well. He was angry. He was angry. I wouldn't be surprised if he felt tricked by God betrayed by God. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Not for the last time, though. He gets angry again in this chapter when God brings in an object lesson from nature. After the people repented, he stormed out of the city, but he didn't go home to Joppa. Instead, he went to the east of the city and plopped down to watch. (laughs) Actually, he built a booth. And when you hear the word booth, don't think like a ticket booth or a phone booth, if you know what that is, or even like a lemonade stand. What I want you to picture instead is like, well, maybe what my kids used to build at the beach with driftwood. Have you seen those shelters of driftwood at the beach? Jonah like pulled some logs together and wove some sticks over them so he'd have a place to shelter from the sun. But I don't think he did a very good job because as we saw, God had to, or God sent a tree to give him true shade. So he plopped in that booth and he watched to see what would become of the city. And again, I find this funny because he knows what's going to become of the city. Nothing. Nothing's going to be done to the city. God already relented. He already knew that God wasn't going to act. He was just 
sticking around in the blazing sun, I don't know, to make himself more miserable? To prove a point? Right? He could have gone back to Nineveh. I'm sure he would have been very welcome there. He probably should have gone back to make disciples. But instead, he's sitting outside the city, getting sunburned and pouting. Then God causes a plant, some sort of like quick-growing vine to shoot up overnight Jack and the Beanstalk style, and it provides shade from the sweltering sun for Jonah. And for the first time in the entire book, the entire book of Jonah, Jonah's happy. And he's not just happy. It says he's exceedingly happy. <laughs> in, in the Hebrew, I don't have this, but it actually means like happy, happy, or joyful, happy. He's happy, happy. Like he's going crazy out in the sun, happy. He maybe... He takes it as a sign that God is finally on his side. I don't know. Maybe he just wanted the relief from the shade. But whatever it was, his reaction is entirely over the top. And again, we're dealing with opposites. He was exceedingly angry that a city of 120,000 people repented. And now he's exceedingly happy about a little tree. But like I said, this wasn't just a little gift from God. This was an object lesson. God appointed a little worm to nibble at the beanstalk in the night so that it withered. And if that weren't enough, in the morning, God appointed a great east wind to like huff and puff and blow on Jonah causing him to, again, to cry out, it is better for me to die than live. Kill me now. What kind of joke is this, Lord? But God wasn't joking. He says again, do you do well to be angry? One of the great values of our emotions is that they show us where our values lie. What makes us most angry and what makes us most happy reveals what we truly value. Let's say that again. What makes us most angry and what makes us most happy reveals what we most value. And Jonah valued his comfort more than he valued the people of Nineveh. He valued them so little. And guys, I spent some time this week studying the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians. And I'm not so sure we should be quick to judge Jonah. If I did, I would be very hypocritical because there was a point this week where I was standing in the kitchen yelling at Matt, Jonah was right! What was God thinking? Because I read about the Assyrians and what they do. I know Paul mentioned some of it. But you guys, their brutality and cruelty cannot be overstated. They were the most violent people, some say, in the ancient world altogether. 
they butchered their enemies. I think I have some pictures from palaces. They, there's one picture here, this one, cut off their heads and played games with them. They maimed soldiers, they tortured them, and then hung their body parts while they were still alive as trophies, cutting off noses, ears, hands, feet, gouging out eyes. They skinned people alive, used their skins as decoration. You guys, they burned children alive. And they did this to cause fear in the hearts of the surrounding nations. Because if a nation heard that the Assyrians were coming, they would be willing to pay a lot of tribute in order to avoid being conquered by the Assyrians. And if my math is right, that's exactly what was happening to the nation of Israel at the time of Jonah. You guys, Jonah wasn't just prejudiced. He wasn't xenophobic. He wasn't even just reluctant to open up God's blessings to people who weren't the chosen people of God. Jonah cared about justice. Jonah cared about righteousness. And I began to think that maybe we shouldn't be shocked by Jonah in this story. Maybe we should be shocked by God. Because who's this God who's willing to let the Ninevites off the hook? After one day of a five-word sermon, how could God expect Jonah to rejoice when a city that thrived on such horrors escaped his judgment? I don't know about you, but if those had been my children, I would want justice. Or at least, at least greater signs of repentance, at least a longer sermon. And Jonah made this clear, very clear, his point in the opening prayer of this chapter when he said, I knew this about you, God. I knew you were going to let them off the hook. I knew you were gracious and merciful. You guys, Jonah knew the scriptures well, right? We saw that back in chapter, was it two? Chapter two, when he quoted the Psalms. And now we saw it again in the way he, he quoted the Torah. The prayer at the beginning of this chapter came straight from Exodus 34, from the sacred moment when God appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses had been begging for God's help to lead the Israelites through the wilderness, begged for God to teach him his ways. He begged for God to show him his glory. And the glory of God is too great for any man to see. So God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and he passed before him telling him his name, teaching him his ways, showing him his glory. Let's read this together. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses was so moved that he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. This is what Jonah's referencing. Can we compare the two prayers? This is Moses up here, Jonah down here. What's missing from Jonah's prayer? What's missing? Yeah. It's missing the, will no, by no means clear the guilty. Jonah left out the difficult parts for us. He left out the difficult parts about the wrath. And he left them out intentionally, I think, because Jonah saw only God's mercy and no wrath, even though that's what he wanted. You see, when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses had seen God liberate the Israelites from Pharaoh. The Israelites had been enslaved, and and God overthrew the Egyptians with ten plagues. Moses had seen them, the Nile, turn to blood, the hail, the gnats, the, the darkness, the death of the firstborn. Moses had seen the Red Sea swallow up Pharaoh's army after the oppressed people had walked through on dried land. Moses knew God's mercy toward the Israelite nation. And he knew God's wrath on their enemies. But Jonah experienced God very differently. He was hoping for that God that had conquered the Egyptians. He was out there sitting, looking at the city, hoping for blood and boils and frogs and darkness and hail and death. But that's not what he got instead. Jonah saw only God's magnificent mercy on his enemies. Jonah had the expectation that his enemy would be God's enemy. But instead, God had grace on Jonah's enemy. Guys, for all their horrors, the Ninevites were not like the Egyptians. Okay, they were vile and oppressive, probably even more so. Their actions were atrocious. But the Ninevites, when given just the slightest chance to repent, took it. And God snatched up that repentance, and he relented. And this is who God is. This is our God, the God that we've been singing to, the God that we've been praying to. Our God is the God who responds to even the most violent, ruthless criminal who repents. God will give bountiful mercy 
and love and grace and provision, his whole self. Our God is the father who runs to welcome the wayward son. Our God is the shepherd that searches for the lost lamb. Our God is the mother hen who shelters her chicks with her own body. Today is a special day on the church calendar. We've already said it's Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week, the beginning of the progression of Christ on the long road to the cross. It happens about 800 years after Jonah. Jesus rode on a borrowed donkey through the streets of Jerusalem, and the people came out in droves, cheering, crying out, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They, I believe they were authentic, but they wanted the same thing Jonah did. They wanted Jesus to come free them from the Romans. But our God was entering the city with a different purpose. He was coming to liberate his people from the true enemy, from Satan. He was coming to overthrow the bonds of sin. He was coming to free them from death and every effect of the fall. And he wasn't just coming to liberate his people. He was coming to liberate all people, even the Romans. There's a story I love of another missionary, one who was sent to a remote tribe in Indonesia back in the 1950s, 60s. His name was Otto Koning. And Otto tells the stories of his interactions with the tribe where he was ministering with a lot of self-deprecating humor and love. Um, But he was really frustrated with these people. Um, He called them, and in his eyes, they were thieves. They were thieves. They couldn't be trusted with his things. They would take his shirts that were hanging up on the clothesline. They would enter there. There was one story where they, they would enter his house, have dinner with them, but kick the silverware uh, between the floorboards where kids would be waiting underneath to snatch the silverware and run away. Another story he tells of, of somebody stole his wife's prescription sunglasses and she was like tottering around the village, unable to see because, because of course the prescription was too strong for her. <laughs> he, he once removed a pen from one of their, um, one of their nasal, their septum piercings right? They came and they were constantly taking his things and it drove him mad. Worst of all were the pineapples. He was a gardener and he hired a bunch of these people to plant pineapples in a monster field outside the village and and they just kept taking them. And if you know about pineapples, it takes three years for them to grow. So he had been waiting for three years for his first pineapple harvest. And when he went out there, they were gone. They were all gone. These people would come and get them, these people, he says, would come and get them before they were ripe. They were stealing green pineapples. And, and he was furious all the time. He was angry. He was constantly on the lookout, constantly frustrated, constantly guarding his things. His blood pressure was high. He couldn't sleep. He was fighting with his wife. And this went on for years, like a decade. 
all through that time, he kept trying to care for the sick. He kept trying to preach the gospel. He kept trying to be faithful, but he was doing it all angry. And he wasn't just angry at the people. He was angry at God. And he was praying a very honest prayer. God, I'm here. I'm your faithful missionary. Why are you letting these people do this to me? About year 10, he was on furlough in Canada, I think, and he heard a message at a conference on Romans 6, dying to self, laying down your life for the sake of Christ. And he realized that if he was truly going to be surrendered to God, he could no longer see these people as his enemies. And that meant he couldn't hold on to his possessions so tightly. He couldn't value all his things, his pineapples, more than he valued these people. So he had to surrender. He had to surrender every pen, every shirt, every piece of silverware, every pineapple to the Lord. He gave them all to God, you know, gradually, but he, but he did it. He started looking at everything that he owned as truly belonging to God, and it was no longer his job to guard them. If people wanted to steal them, he let them. He didn't fight it. When he saw people going in to take the pineapples, he prayed the prayer, Lord, they're heading there to take your pineapples. Are you going to do anything about it? No? Okay. But the unexpected consequence was that the people came to him in amazement. You're happy, they said. You're more fun now. <gasps> Have you become a Christian? <laughs> and he said, what are you talking about? And he said, they said, well, you've been preaching this whole time about Christians, and we were hoping we could finally meet one. Are you a Christian? <laughs> oh. So what does this mean for us, right? The story of Otto, the story of Jonah, even the story of Jesus on his way to the cross, very much address the question of enemies. Who is our enemy? And sometimes our enemies are bold and obvious and can come to mind quickly. Sometimes our enemies are abusers. I'm going to take the second to say that this church does not stand with abusers, okay? If you're someone in this room who's been abused or is being abused, we want to be a safe place for you and we want to help, and I mean that very sincerely, right? Christ calls us to love our enemies, but we can do it from afar. If you're someone who has an obvious enemy in mind, then I think you're actually a step ahead of many of us. Because sometimes enemies are more subtle. They're faceless behind a screen. They're people we don't know. Or they're people we do know, but we just ignore. They annoy us. They're the people who interrupt us or interrupt our work speak badly about us behind our back. They're people who have different political beliefs. They're people that we can avoid if we, if we want to. But the call of the gospel is clear. If we are to be made into the image of God, we cannot let any hatred of any enemy take root in our hearts. The call of Christ is forgiveness. 
the call of Christ is forgiveness. And this church, this church is to be a place of peace, a place of love. This is to be a place where we welcome everyone in if they look different than you, if they vote different than you, if they've committed crimes, all are welcome here at the cross. And I think that needs to start with the Lord cleansing our hearts, with the Lord searching our hearts to root out any hatred and resentment that we may have. So Matt, could you come up and pray? And I'm gonna lead, or play, and I'll lead us in a prayer Will you join me, letting the Holy Spirit examine your heart? Search out any resentment, any hatred, any anger. Lord, we've worshipped you. We've honored you. We've heard stories of what you've done, how you forgive how your whole character is inclined toward love and forgiveness. And as your people, we want to be like you. Holy Spirit, examine our hearts now, I pray. Church, think about what makes you exceedingly happy and what makes you exceedingly angry what do your emotions tell you about where you may be harboring anger and resentment What items or situations do you prioritize over the people in your life? Who do you feel God has favored over you? group of people who bother you, a nationality, a political party, an organization, the very rich, the very poor, what about family members? to take any names or faces that you see and offer them up to God. And join in your hearts with this prayer, Lord. We surrender to you, our enemies. We surrender to you, the people who have hurt us. 
who have spoken badly about us, who have abused us, who annoy us. We surrender the people who infringe on our rights. We have no rights in the kingdom of heaven. Everything we have is yours, Lord. Lord, we don't want to be like Jonah, angry and bitter. We want to be like Moses who said, Lord, teach me your ways. I cannot do this without you. I cannot move forward without you. I will not go unless your presence goes with me. Lord, we will not move as a church unless your presence moves with us. Lord, we accept your forgiveness, your mercy, your help. We accept your character, God, the Lord, gracious and forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in love. Oh, Lord, we lift our hearts up to you and trust you as a body. Amen.